Arcons Archons. Welcome to Sanctimonious, a Keyforge podcast where two zealous Keyforge players discuss various topics regarding combat within the Crucible. Stand at attention and salute your hosts, Sir Jake, Sir Alex, and Sir Dan. Welcome back to another episode of Sanctimonious, and thanks for joining us if you're here in Twitchland. Uh, my name is Jake, and we have a crowded castle today, joined by our two loyal co-hosts, Alex and Dan, and special guest Burnside, Brendan Hansen, to talk about his deck that we've all been playing this week, Comrade Duran. Thanks so much for uh, being here, everyone. It's good to be back. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, y'all. I'm really excited to finally be in the castle. Here you are. Here we are all. Check your weapons at the door. You guys want to start with an inspiration, or should we just get right into the discussion this week? I could do an inspiration. The people demand inspiration. There's four of us. Maybe we should just do our guest inspiration and get into the discussion. I like it. I didn't have one anyways. <laughs> All right, no pressure, uh, Burnside, but uh, defer to you this week. All on you. So my inspiration is I've been playing a lot of uh, Chainbound mode on Knowledge's Power lately on, on the uh, new old Kip. And I am totally obsessed with Chainbound Mode. I think it's so interesting how it acts as a new lens for the game. Uh, it sort of like completely filters old decks in new ways. And I've been really fascinated to see the ways in which my whole understanding of Keyforge has been tested. Uh, so stuff like under coming to re-understand the power of house cheating um, and how useful that is, like getting just eking out every single ounce of power out of cards, stuff like Dominator Bobble or Hunting Witch, uh, like performing even better than I expected because it, you can maximize the value. Like Hunting Witch maximizes the value when it comes into play, or Dominator Bobble, like maximizing the value between turns and your limited cards that you have access to. Um, so I've just been having a lot of fun, like seeing the game through new eyes. I hadn't like gone to a ton of chain balance or anything. So that's my inspiration. I have also been playing a little bit, and it's been really cool to, especially for as we'll get into it with this discussion, the deck that you submitted was one that was intended mainly for adaptive play. So that's been a really cool and convenient way to experience what it would be like at varying levels of chains. Um, so yeah, I've been enjoying that mode quite a bit myself. Alex, Dan, thoughts? You know, uh, I, I don't like that at all. No, I, I hate it. No, I like Chainbound mode. I, I do. Uh, Chainbound mode is pretty, pretty fun. Um, I I agree with what you said um just about well uh, here's the thing for me okay I'm sorry focusing my thoughts um I haven't actually um gotten to play that much local play so I've never really played decks chained that much uh other than like formats that force me to so it's actually been a good experience cuz I'm like oh this is what uh chain this must be what chainbound is actually like I never get to play decks chained so that 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 aspect of it has been fun and seeing decks in a new light and also seeing what works well under chains and kind of what doesn't work well under chains has been uh, interesting. Pro tip, just play decks with Zenzi and just get it turn one every game and then it's like you're not playing I mean, with chains at all. Yeah, I mean, that was, that'll do strategy. it. <laughs> it's worked pretty well. I've got two chains on one deck so far. In both games, I started Zenzi turn ones with the chain. So it's just like, oh, I'm not actually chained at all. I'm actually getting an extra card. This is great. 
Yeah, so that's cool. And it's also led to some great discussion in our Discord lately. People talking about chains, what that means for the game. So we'll plug that again. Uh, if you're not already in there, uh, we'd love to have you join that conversation in perhaps a richer way than we're getting to right now. I also want to take a second before we get into our main topic. We did mention that, of course, the deck we're talking about this week is Burnside's deck. So that's part of the reason having you on. But I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself because you're definitely a name that people who are longtime listeners of this podcast have uh, heard before. I know you've been referenced several times. Uh, so you're, you're a keyboard player, but you also have done some cool stuff with game design. Do you want to maybe just introduce yourself a little bit to people at home? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on again. Uh, my name is Brendan Burnside Hansen. Burnside is my moniker from my time in the Pokemon tournament community, which is a Pokemon fighting game. Uh, played that game competitive, competitively for a long time. Did some casting uh, for the Pokemon company with that. And then also, like you said, I also am a game designer. So I have two forthcoming card games, one with Calliope Games. You probably know them from, if you know them at all, from Suro. Uh, that's like their biggest game. And then uh, another company called Japanime Games. So I love games so much. I've been obsessed with everything Richard Garfield makes forever. Uh, so Keyforge especially like has, I don't know, set a fire in my brain for the last year and a half. Has it been that long? Yeah. No, la- November November 18, wasn't it? It's actually been yeah, a year and a half. Nice. Yeah. yeah that's accurate. It's hard to keep track of time these days. To be what is time? <laughs> Seriously, it's just endless hours in a house. Of course, that was my life before quarantine, but now <laughs> we just got a reason for it. Well, I think that's cool, man. And uh, Brendan, I think we really see eye to eye on a lot. Both of us have kind of been interested in the fighting game community, game design, that kind of stuff. So it's super great to have you on. Uh, we were chatting a little bit beforehand, and excited to hear what you have to say about this deck, and maybe if you can offer some of that you know, game design perspective throughout. Uh, I know that's something that would probably bring a ton of extra value to the folks who listen to this podcast. I'll do my best. Keyforge is a, <laughs> is a wild beast. It is uh, untamed, so. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Tell us what we did wrong with your deck. <laughs> yeah. Mistakes were probably made. Cool. Let's get into the main topic. So just to outline, we had some users, or users, we had listeners, people who are in our Discord, people on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, submit decks, and we were searching for a fun deck to play, specifically with Adaptive in mind. So this is sort of our second in the Let's Play series. After, I think we had something like 20 submissions, we each, picked, we each picked one of those submissions that we thought looked interesting had folks vote on it on Discord and Twitter. And ultimately, we landed on Comrade Durand. Comrade Durand. So the deck we'll be talking about today. So which, which, who of us actually picked that deck? Uh, I, I put it forward. Wow, nicely done. And I do want to say I randomized it. I didn't know who submitted what when I was looking at decks. So it was just... Just luck of the draw. I just liked what I lo- I really like Book of LEQ. That was why I really chose it. I just love Book of LEQ, so I wanted. To, I was like, I I chose the deck that I was like, I think I'll have fun playing this. Cool. Um. So maybe we should start. Do you want to just kind of go through the houses here and and sort of talk through the house one at a time, talk about some key cards? Yeah, yeah. We could just give a an overview of the deck. I think that would be probably a good place to start. 
this deck comes in at a 73 sass with 3.7 <laughs> amber control and 18 expected amber you will find yourself in some awkward situations 15 speed hopefully loops you through those amber control cards and don't forget those 14 amber pips 13 actions and 19 creatures back to you jake oh wow thank you very much uh sir weird salesman voice i don't know what that was <laughs> that was Game a new show. one that was a new one it's like 90s price is right guy game show voice I like many that. personalities yeah. of dan we're bringing that back all right cool well let's let's maybe talk through a house i tried to bring it up here on uh twitch and try to figure out the best way where i'm not blocking people all right so i'll just quickly read through the cards and we can sort of stop and talk about some of the key ones uh so we've got in this, a draining touch, two zooms, festering touch, gleeful mayhem, the evil eye, two three fates, a snags mirror, uh, itarome. I don't know, is that how you guys say that? Eteromi? Very, uh, I think it's like etamame, right? So it's etaromi. Etamame. Etamame. I'm just gonna call him etamame from now on. My favorite demon. Okay, so we got Lord Invidious and a snag. So, Dan, why don't you go first and maybe pick a card or two that you think are kind of the key ones uh, for this deck? I mean, obviously, Lord Invidious is a big card. If you get that early, it's really sweet. And then the Exhumes play a big part because we'll find out in Star Alliance we've got a um, Tactical Officer Moon, so you can rearrange your battle line. So it's really fun to drop Lord Invidious on a semi-crowded board and then uh, Exhume a Tactical Officer Moon to make sure he's in the middle. Um, for me, for me, this is all about the the three fates. It's all about those three fates, and and Lord le, less le, more Lord Invidious. I don't honestly think there are that many good exhumed targets. That maybe maybe Brennan will disagree with me on this, but I I mean, uh, like you maybe Whoa, hope you hit fired. Ghost. You maybe hope you hit Ghost Hawks, but like for me, mo- uh, and, and like there's like a couple like fine things to exhume. It's not a bad card. It's not hurting the deck, certainly, but um, it's also not like I was always. I, I I think three fates is one of the best removal cards in the game, though. I I still think it's so good. It just, especially in a deck like this that really doesn't have very many big guys, so you will pretty much always hit only enemy stuff when you whenever it fires. It's it's so good. It's really really good in this deck, and one of the big things too, like you were saying, you're only hitting the only big guys. We'll talk about more of the other ones, but one of the big ones is King of Fans, so you can sort of use it to to knock your own King of Fan off the board. Um, but I will say about the Exhumes really quickly, I don't think that there's that. I think there's some pretty good targets in the deck, but there's also targets that are really important for the overall strategy. Um, I don't know how deep we want to go just yet, so I, I don't want to spoil stuff. But I, the other thing I want to point out about this is there's only three creatures. Um, which is sort of notable for a house to mostly be actions and artifacts, especially in a house with Lord Invidious in it. I think that's a great point, and I, I kind of want to touch on a couple of those things. I think one thing that this deck has going for it overall, and that this has plays a huge part in, is it's pretty easy to control the board against some of these big worlds collide decks, uh, because three fates just eat dinosaurs. Uh, which is so huge and important. So, and I also think nobody mentioned it, but Gleeful Mayhem I found to be a really key card as well in terms yeah. of uh, maintaining board control, which is important. And then finally, I, I do want to get everyone's opinion because this is a bit of a controversial card. Do you guys like the Snags Mirror here or or not? 
I just discarded it most of the time. I, I'm, I just discarded. I was like, I'm not going to play this game. I'm going to play a different game. and just <laughs> Unless I was, like, way ahead. Or it got me to check for some reason. Like, if, like, I really, really needed to be at check and I really needed that amber for some reason. Otherwise, I just, I just, I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put myself in a situation to maybe get burned down the line if you're smart enough. I'm just going to, we're not, we're going to play a straight up game without Snag's Mirror. <laughs> what do you think, Dan? Oh, I made the mistake, like, of thinking that maybe I'd hit my book at some point and be able to play whatever house they're trying to lock me out of. But uh, that doesn't work so well when uh, they just lock you out of it and you never find book. Yeah. I forgot to say okay. that. It does, it does matter if you have book out. Book is, like, the huge deciding factor on Snag's Mirror for me. So if they're playing Star Alliance, I will not play Snag's Mirror. I will never play it. It's just you're going you're gonna to get locked out and you're going to cry. Um, if you already have book out, then Snag's Mirror all of a sudden becomes less of a mirror uh, because you can cheat your way into a lot of different houses. Yeah. And the tool, the deck has consistent tools to do that, um, which makes it, it makes it feel so mean, um, especially if they do have Star Alliance, and I love that. And I found Snag's Mirror, you generally don't lock out with it, but sometimes you clinch the win at the end. Like, if I can lock my opponent out of a key charge with Untamed, thanks to Snag's Mirror, that feels really, really good. I think it's a an amazing card in this deck. Well, the one thing I was going to say, in Adaptive 2, I think it's a trap card, and I want some trap cards in my Adaptive deck, but sorry. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I think this is the kind of card I really like. Uh, just to, It suits my playstyle, um, because... It's the kind of card that is like has such enormous upside. Like it can literally win you the game on its own. It can like help win in situations you have no business winning. And a lot of times you do discard it, but that's okay because you know you're the one when you're the one playing the deck. Like you have that power, right? So you can make the call, discard it in that situation. And you're really not out that much. But I think that the upside it offers, especially in this deck that has the Ghost Hawk and has the book. Uh, and in a lot of ways to work around it, um, it's really nice to have. And, and I think I did manage to play this exactly 10 times, and I did get a lockout win that started turn two uh, against... I was scared. I played I, my turn two... Or, sorry, so it was my first turn of the game playing second, and I played Snag's Mirror, Lord Invidious for the start. And I was really worried they were just going to call uh, Dis. They chose not to. I don't know. They had no discards in their hand or what. And I just <laughs> never called another house other than this the whole game. So mean. <laughs> so mean. <laughs> That's cool. Some interesting disagreements on that card. But I think it's a, it's an interesting card to think about. My appreciation for the challenge of playing it was kind of increased uh, over the course of playing with this deck. All right. So let's, let's hop into Star Alliance. Do we want to let our, our uh, kind of game show host talk us through the cards here? In Star Alliance, we have Lay of the Land, followed by a Book of L.E.Q. Arms Master Molina is there to keep your guys safe. You've got a Calvin that can be a creature or an upgrade. Draw those cards, people. Chief Engineer Walls, get back that Calvin. Lieutenant Karkar. Medic Ingram, Navigator Ali, to make sure you always find that right card on the top of your deck when you tap that book. And a Science Officer Quinn can, just to, because you can can. <laughs> then you got a Sensor Chief Garcia as one of the two Amber Control cards in the deck. Tactical Officer Moon, always there to rearrange things. And last but certainly not least, that Universal Translator to make sure you're understood everywhere in the galaxy. Back to you, Jake. Oh, well, thanks a lot for that. Uh, all right, well, let's, let's, let's start with uh, 
Alex this time. Do you want to maybe tell us some of the key cards for you or, or how you thought this house functioned generally in the deck? Uh, it's like basically the only cards that exist in Star Alliance for me are Book of LEQ, Lay of the Land, Ali, and kind of Kirkar, just because he protects Ali. Uh, <laughs> other than that, oh, I mean, Sensor Chief Garcia is kind of a thing because you have so little amber control that Sensor Chief Garcia existing does help you somewhat. Um, but I mean, all the rest of it's fine. It does, they do Star Alliance things, but I, I would say that the, where this deck becomes extremely degenerate is if your opponent can't remove Ollie and you have book out. It just, that's, that basically just ends the game. Um, like if they, if it's more than a couple of turns of you doing that, of you just like emptying your entire hand selectively for exactly what you need, uh, it, it, there's, it's hard to beat that. It really is. That's a, that's very strong. And, it, and I, uh, I do want to say when I did my card review, I did say that Book of LEQ is absolutely bonkers broken. And I'm glad to be proved right by this deck. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I can go next. Yeah. I think one of the, interesting things about this deck is that amber control is so limited so it's it's interesting that uh your sensor chief garcia and also your science officer quinkin i think are really key cards uh i was really impressed specifically with quinkin and just how much work that does i think it functions really well in synergy with the dis here uh, which is often clearing a lot of stuff from the board even your own cards which allows for uh, more activations of that. And then I think Alex exactly right. How, like, Navigator Ollie is normally not a card that your opponent has to super care about. Um, but because of the combo with the book here, it basically turns it into a Witch of the Eye or a Hunting Witch that you have to remove right away. I didn't have too many games where I got to go crazy with the book, but in a lot of cases, just forcing the opponent to use key removal on the navigator to allow your Quinkin or Garcia to live uh, made a huge difference in getting more out of the amber control elements of this house than I think rightfully you should be able to. All right, Dan, over to you before uh, Brendan can tell us why we're wrong. <laughs> no. Yeah, Garcia was great. I would exhume Garcia a lot for the amber control because, I mean, you just didn't have that much amber control. So you really hope to hit Garcia early when you're playing the deck because you needed just that little bit. Like, if I could hit Garcia early and just build Exhum and Regrowth Garcia as I was needing Amber Control, like, I mean, you can't prevent the forges, but when you're making them forge for eight, it just takes them that much longer. So um, I think Garcia was actually a big part of it. And the <laughs> Lay of the Land was, an, was a new part. <laughs> I don't know. Where is your blankie? It's not in here. Um... Yeah, so there's the blanky, you know, search. Hope you got that resolved. You really, yeah. Excuse me, my coworker needs something real quick. <laughs> yeah, all my coworkers. Uh, bro's trying to play with the keyboard right now. So book of LEQ, I think, was really important to get early in this deck. Like you really wanted to hit that early because again, you have Ali and Lay of the Land. You could really get some house cheating shenanigans going on real quick with that. With the double exhum and the regrowth, you could recur Ali and just make sure you always had your top card set up. And then with um, the you know medic, medic Ingram, you could ward Ali too and make it really tough to remove. I got it a couple of games where I was able to get that Star Alliance board out and just pretty much play three houses a turn, and it felt real good. Awesome. Nice. 
So it's such a treat, like listening to you guys play this deck and hearing the different perspectives on it. Um, I mostly agree with everything that you're saying. Uh, I think that the the other sort of small things that I would point out is I think this deck actually has two broken combos. Well, really three broken combos. Uh, but the one that the other one, two of them are central to Star Alliance. Uh, the book and Ali with Lay of the Land is great, and then also Medic Ingram, Universal Translator, Lord Invi- uh, Snag. Or just like Medic Ingram, Lord Invidious, uh, Universal Translator, both those are ridiculous. But with Medic Ingram, Universal Translator, and Snag, you can set up lockouts versus elusive character creatures if someone plays one down. Um, and depending on their hand, that can just be the game. You can get a Snag lockout off of it. Um, or So that's really, really fun. So in my mind, Walls becomes a really interesting, important card in the deck. And it's part of the Amber control that I didn't understand when I first started playing this. Uh, because we haven't gone there yet, but in Untamed, there's a Wild Spirit, which is another upgrade. So it's one of the four Amber Control cards, and it's the only Amber Control card that's uh, a capture. Kinkan's a steal, but you know he's tough to make that fire. So in my mind, the Wild Spirit with the Ghost Hawks can be a really important part of the Amber Control for this deck. So Walls just becomes this interesting like glue that brings these other combos back together. And partially why I think this is a good adaptive deck is knowing to, to destroy Walls. Treat it like a pseudo witch in the deck, depending on what's in the discard, can be really important. Yeah, that's really cool. Definitely that's did not get any snag locks. <laughs> no, I, uh, that's what I was about to ask. Like, who are you playing who's leaving snag alive? Jeez. <laughs> but it has the My opponents are like instant remove snag every single time. <laughs> Kirkhar and Melina, though, you can protect him. Yeah, yeah there's, there's tools hard for to it. kill. There, there are. I think. That is something that's a pro in this deck, is there's a ton of cards that are, like, you just really want to remove right away. Like, basically all the creatures we've listed so far, besides Edamame or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, cool. Well, let's jump in to Untamed Blast, and then we can sort of talk to some more, like, overall ideas about the deck. And what did the people win, Dan? (laughs) All right, maybe, nope. uh, maybe not. All right. All right. It was worth I'll, a try. I, was I'll, I'll get, I got us. So we've got, uh, I'm not going to try uh, car salesman voice. I'm just going to give you normal <laughs> Alex voice. Uh, Cauldron Boil, Key Charge, Mimicry, Regrowth, Bramble Links, Deepwood Druid, Best Card in the Deck, Ghost Talk, Ghost Talk, <laughs> King of Fant, uh, Mab the Mad, Molfin, and Wild Spirit. Well, I'll go first this time because I've deferred on the other ones and give you guys time to actually think. Um, so it, it seems like the Untamed does really important role in this deck of creating a lot of amber. And for a deck that has limited amber control, like you do need to be racing, you do need to be generating amber quickly. Uh, and Ghost Hawks are great for that. Regrowth, uh, Mad the Mab, Key Charge. I won at least one game actually against, uh, a good friend, Aurora, with a, a really cool, uh, play with that involved using the Bramble Inks to reap with the can of fan out so that I could regrowth it to get the second reap out of it. Uh, so there's cool lines here, and, and a lot of them are involved generating a lot of amber. And then, of course, Mimicry, one of the best cards in the game, super versatile, uh, always skill testing, too. Yeah, um, like the Ghost Hawks were super nice. It allowed for, like I said, there's a lot of turns where you could play three houses between. 
um, book, exhume, ghost hawks, like just all sorts of shenanigans if you could stick a board. Uh, the Untamed really gave it some super burst potential. Like you're dropping those ghost hawks or you drop an invidious one turn and you can still call Untamed and you just invidious the next turn with the ghost hawk. Did that a few times, feels pretty good when you can, you know, steal things without having to call this again. Um, Map the Mad is an interesting card. I hadn't really played with it a whole lot and I'm not sure that I like it because I kind of want to draw through my deck and like reaping with it and putting it back in your deck seems like a drawback more than <laughs> more than a good thing a lot of times. I'd rather it just died so I could maybe regrowth it if I need an extra amber to set up a key charge or something like that. Um, and then yeah, Mimicry is always great. I just always love Mimicry. And then the third and final uh, amber control cards out here in the Wild Spirit. And I mean... It, it does some work. Like if you can wild spirit an existing creature and then play a ghost hawk, it's pseudo amber control. But yeah, I guess mimicry can be amber control if your opponent has something you can. Mimicry use. can be anything. <laughs> mimicry can be anything. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's see. I, I key charge did not fire for me very often. Uh, I found my I found that not firing a lot. Um, ghost hawks. Also not firing for me a lot, uh, which normally I love Ghost Talk, but weirdly, Ghost Talk is one of the, it's a, Ghost Talk is an interesting card when you have Book of LEQ, because a lot of times I'm just tempoing out Ghost Talks on my Star Alliance turn with, with Book, because I'm like, well, it, 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 it masks out to be the same amount of Amber gained, right? And the same amount of cards played, so really it's, like, it doesn't really matter. It, you're still technically getting the amber i guess but it is it feels weird because it feels like you're wasting the card but you're still getting to get to the back to the good stuff uh so in that way and sometimes it sets up exhume for later which is nice um what else king of fan i actually i, I like i kind of like king of fan um i will say that king of fan is a card that you kind of drop and your opponent suddenly has to deal with it and it can be really awkward um, for them and mostly i feel like this deck doesn't care about blowing up its own creatures um sometimes you have to worry about your own king of fan but most of the time it's it's like way more in your favor to have king of fan out um because you have so much control over when it blows up um one of my coworkers is coming in um so uh but uh losing my train of thought but uh, yeah so king of fan uh, i like king of fan a lot and actually molfin uh, Molfin can do a lot of work when you're, especially when there's some shadows or something. I've had people blow up their boards on accident with Molfin a lot of times. <laughs> so King of Fan in this deck was a revelation for me. Before this deck, I thought that that card was just trash. I was like, why did they reprint another Reap Destroy? All creatures have Reap Destroy. Uh, this is like some weird Richard Garfield Johnny card. Like, how's this going to affect the game? And it took Comrade Duran for me to understand why this card exists and how it changes the shape of games. Um, so cards like that, and especially King of Fan, because he's so hard to destroy elongate games, right? Because they, uh, prevent or they, they don't prevent, but they, uh, disincentivize reaping. So if you disincentivize reaping, that's going to make a game longer. And Comrade Durand loves a longer game because it wants to have time to put its pieces on the board, right? It wants to find its book of LEQ. It wants to, to have the time to let stuff go to discard, to exhume it back, to, to find the Officer Moon to swap Lord Invidious in. So I'm perfectly fine, especially with low Amber control. If I can reduce the amount that my opponent's reaping and accomplish that, that's great. Um, so I think it's amazing. When I first started playing this deck, uh, if someone said that King of Fan's probably going to be one of your favorite regrowth targets, I would have said you're 
crazy. Like, no way. <laughs> no way. Um, but it, it's become that. It's it's really fun. Also, I think my other thoughts are Mav, in general, like, as a budget dust pixie, is yeah. kind of disappointing. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's another one where I saw it printed in Worldscon, and I was like, oh, really, guys? Like, this is, this is what we have this time around? Um, yeah. But I've come around on that card specifically because of Book of LEQ in this deck. There's not very many cards in Keyforge that let you put a card back in your deck. And sometimes when you're getting down to those bottom five cards and you don't, you know what the contents of your deck is and it doesn't contain Untamed, being able to put Mab back in to be able to call Star Alliance and then cheat back into Untamed can win you the game. So I think it gives you another lever to control and that's really interesting. Uh, So I think specifically in this deck, I like Mab. It doesn't come up all that often, but when it does, it feels real good. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it took me a while to uh, get there, too, with Tongafant, I think, specifically, uh, where it was only towards the last couple of games where I was realizing you really just want to, like, set that there and force your opponent to deal with it. And it feels like such a win when if your opponent runs two creatures into this guy to remove him or, or, like, uses a kill spell on it that could be targeting your can can or whatever else uh, that's like more important uh so yeah like it, it wasn't it, and that i think it speaks to how good this could, how this could be a really good adaptive deck because uh yeah that was something i was starting to pick up on at the end uh using it as a regrowth target just to stall uh but it took me a while and then i, I also want to touch on the uh, I so I, I did not get there with the mad the mab of realizing like how important that could be uh, for manipulating the number of cards in your deck. But I did run into a situation where I was like, I had this super awesome turn lined up. I had the combo. I had the Book of LEQ. I had the um, Navigator. And then I start taking my turn and I'm like, I have no cards in my deck. I have zero mm-hmm. cards in my deck. And, you know, uh, that is another element of this deck where it's really important to keep track of that towards the end so you can hit those combos. So I do think I can definitely see, even though I didn't experience it, how having that one mechanism of just being able to manipulate it just slightly to either even just make sure you get that final activation with the book uh, could be a game winning or losing type of decision. I think another way that you can get. Oh, Oh, no, I was going to say I exhumed. I exhumed Mab the Mad a lot. To be honest, yeah, that was like one of my that was like one of my bigger map or exhum targets was just I want that extra pip off of exhum. It's kind of like Dust Pixie. I just want to play. I just want to play Coda Rush. That's what I was doing. <laughs> um, I definitely I I exhum Mav or Regrowth Mav a fair amount too. Um, the one thing I was gonna say, uh, Jake, that didn't come up earlier, but I think is another important point about this deck that is about walls sort of being. In a weird way, the like nexus of this web of combos in the deck is uh, he can pull back Calvin, and Calvin is another way in which you can manipulate the number of cards in your deck, right? Or and it also is a, a make an Alia lay of the land combo if you want to do that, which can right. be really helpful. Um, so I yeah yeah I, even just playing the playing walls and then giving letting you know whether or not you should use calvin as an upgrade or a creature is is huge like getting that one extra card can be such big efficiency in keyboards um so yeah that's i definitely see where you're coming from uh okay well let's let's like expand this conversation out a little bit um how many games did you play jake so i played 10 games how many games 
I think I went eight and two. Nice. Um, and th- those were played all in competitive in random games in the competitive room against in either TCO. Uh, the last four I played in KeyForge. Or, or sorry, Kip Tournaments server, so I, I was getting a couple chains. I think I'm up to two chains on the deck now. Uh, and I did, this time, I did play, I, I took a game off of Aurora, and, and one of my losses was to Aurora, and I took a game off of Ugluck, so some good players this time, as opposed to last time when it was all people I didn't recognize. <laughs> uh, what about y'all? How do you guys do? So I tracked, I went 5-5. Five and five. I think I lost some games in the whole TCO tracker going down because I'm pretty sure I played more than 10 games with it because I think I played four adaptive matches with it just to see how it was. I played, I think, to about seven or eight games. Then I started lining up adaptive matches when possible, and all of mine were match made. Uh, The 10 track games I have, I went five and five. Um, Yeah, but I was, you know, I was playing against you sickos in the Discord, so (laughs) not a terrible, terrible record. Um, but yeah, as far as like adaptive matches go, I don't, I think I lost every adaptive match I played with it. (laughs) I, uh, not super high on it as an adaptive deck from the way I was piloting it. Apparently I just did not recognize some of the inner workings and it felt very high roll, low roll. And it felt like, I think I lost two of the games where I never found like book book was buried game one for me. And then game two, my opponent found it like right at the top. And their deck had no artifact control, so then I just watched it do the things I wished I could have done with it in game one <laughs> after getting smashed. So I don't know. And then like I just did one with Beehawk today where we played and his deck has double lights out, double hysteria, it's drab, the much ballyhooed drab. And it was just like the per- it's like drab is such a perfect I think two of my actual adaptive matches were against Beehawk and Drab. And I think Drab is just a really, really bad matchup for it with two lights out, two hysterias. You can just never keep anything on board, and it just it it grinds you to a halt. Like you can't get through your deck either. The third game, he got drab for six chains, and I thought I was going to be okay. But I mean, he was able to just keep bouncing things. I never found Garcia or Evil Eye, so he was just able to forge three keys at six amber, and I just couldn't do anything about it. And I was trying to. I mean, I was trying to cycle as fast as I could, but every time you stereo, there's like four to five guys coming back in my hand. And it takes like two turns to get back to drawing cards again. So I think I ended the game with like six cards left in deck. That was real feel bad. Yeah. So no, I don't. I don't love it for adaptive based on what I played it with, played with it because, like I said, like that high roll, high roll, low roll just feels real bad. And I just maybe maybe if I kept at it and kept playing it, maybe those would turn around a little bit, and maybe I'd find a couple of those little things you just told us about with the uh, like the snag universal translator. That's pretty clever. I don't think Snag ever lived. I was never that concerned about my disc creatures living. So maybe I just misplayed that and didn't play into that hard enough. But I just found that it just felt very high low, high roll, low roll for me playing in the adaptive. It was like, are you going to get booked? Do they have artifact control? No. Okay. Like they stuck book and <laughs> I'm in a tough spot now. Let's see. I went uh, 7-3. I I think that I had more games than this, but this is what I got tracked. Um, And uh, I don't remember, to be honest. I I think that some of these were adaptive. I, I well here's here's my issue, and here's what I realized. This was not a problem of the deck, but I realized that Archon Adaptive requires an intense amount of knowledge 
of the deck. So I ended up just having to play, like, jam a bunch of games with the deck in Solo Archon just so I could understand it well enough to try to play it in Adaptive. Um, and I would say that once I did that, once I actually played some decks, it did start to go a little bit better for me. Um, but uh, in general, I mean, I, I, that, that seems 7-3 is fine. 70% win rate, um, not a ton of games. You know, it's not statistically significant, but um, it felt like overall the deck felt very good to me. Um, I do. I do think that maybe I want to avoid cards like Book of LAQ or Lord Invidious for Adaptive because um, they do create another... Uh, well, they create an inconsistency that's hard to account for. Um, because like I can, I can give somebody a ton of chains... And I think this happened in one of my adaptive matches is I gave somebody like a bunch of chains, like they got it for like eight or nine chains. And then they still won because they dropped turn one Lord Invidious and their deck was like hot garbo and like just could not deal with Lord Invidious being out. So I was just like, I just can't, I can't win. It didn't matter. And if they had dropped that, it probably didn't matter how many chains I gave them. Like, I think that up to, you know, like, to up to, like, a ridiculous about, they would have had to take, like, to a point where probably neither one of us would have taken it to that, like, 14 or 15 chains or something. Like, that turn one Invidious was just, like, game over because the other deck had zero ways to interact with that. And I think with Adaptive, I want to try to avoid cards like that that my opponent can super duper high roll me with and me just be like have no really no options um to deal with it, it, it and maybe that's just a feels bad moment uh definitely was but that's keyforge sometimes so um there's that too uh you like chiming in from the chat to let you know that was against him Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, I don't even remember who this was. Yep, it was. And Ugluk's also a very good player, so that that doesn't hurt. That doesn't help me either. <laughs> yeah, I think I think at least two of the losses were from Ugluk. Yeah, I think yep. also that's a great point, Alex. That speaks to sort of a maybe like a meta takeaway for this podcast, which is that the let's play sort of series where we play decks might just make a little bit more sense for doing like Archon or like Reversal or something than Adaptive. Because I do think the most important thing in Adaptive, almost regardless of deck, is like having a lot of knowledge about your deck. Yeah. Uh, so whereas like you can, I feel much more comfortable going into a game of Archon with a new deck and getting some idea of how good that deck is in that format than I do taking a brand new deck and playing an Adaptive match. Because even if you win or if you lose... I don't know if you have the context necessary really to draw conclusions from it. So, I don't know. Just well, if I win, I it was because of me, and if I lose, it was because of variance. But remember, that's right. what we always... <laughs> <laughs> the Keyforge cover-up. But, yeah, but overall, I did think, just to add, uh, I mean, this deck seemed really strong, much stronger than I thought it would be based on the 3.7 Amber Control stat. Uh, and I was surprised how little that seemed to matter overall in most of my games. Like, I never felt, like, just blown out of the building, really. You need to play against Drab. Yeah, fair. <laughs> I, think, I think me and Hawk played two adaptive matches, and I think Drab won every single match. And even with Drab, like, chained it, like, I think it was eight the first time, and then six the second time. Like, it just, it has the tools to, like I said, just clog your hand up and not allow you to stick to the boards, so... It doesn't have the artifact removal, but it just has enough stuff to just... Yeah, I mean, to be clear, so, I don't know if I'd be taking this to the vault tour. 
but you know, it's a good solid deck. Yeah, let's let's hear the your thoughts. So I have thoughts on the deck as an adaptive deck, and then also thoughts on the matchup specifically of Comrade Varand versus Drab, because Beehawk and I have been playing adaptive in that too. Uh, so I have 185 matches played with Comrade Durand. Uh, the reason, just to explain my Holy thought process. Cow. Yeah. So, and, and this is, it, it's been one of my most fickle relationships with a deck maybe ever. Um, so to like give a little bit of background of why I submitted this as an adaptive deck and why I was interested in it as an adaptive deck. Um, and I think that Dan's criticism is really valuable and, and yours too, Alex. And I really want to talk about that more because I think it's interesting. Um, but so I got this deck, I cracked it in three deck sealed for packs unplugged, uh, pick one. I went four and two with it and I love the deck. I was like so excited about the book of LAQ, all the combos. Um, and felt like it was really strong, came home. I was bummed I missed top cut by one. Um, I felt like the deck was really hard to play. Came home, tried to jam like 10 more games on TCO, did horribly, just like, just so bad. I was like embarrassed. I was like, this deck's amazing. Like, look at these, this card list. Why do I suck so much with this? Um, <laughs> and I just put it away. I put it away for like a month. It just made me so sad. Um, every time I played it, it like reminded me of not top cutting. And I was like, it just made me feel bad at Keyforge. And I feel like a deck that makes you feel bad at Keyforge is probably a good adaptive deck, um, if you can figure it out. So eventually I went back to it. And I was like, uh, this looks fun. I don't care. I'm just going to play this a bunch and mash my head against it. And then slowly I started trickling back with it, started to feel like I figured it out, uh, got to know the deck um, once we reintroduced ourselves and understood how to pilot it. And I feel like one of the things where I was coming from with the deck is or a few points. One, I think a good adaptive deck uh, is really complex, right? It has trap cards. It has combos that maybe aren't immediately obvious. It has exploitable weaknesses. So if you only have four Amber Control cards, that's a big exploitable weakness in your own deck, right? If I know to take out Walls, if I know to take out Garcia, uh, I've basically, and like a few other pieces, I've dealt with a lot of the scary stuff in the deck. If you hand me Infernus, I can rip this deck apart, uh, right? Like, if I can get stuff in the discard, it's just going to completely fall to pieces. Um, but, to Dan's point, I think the one thing that it doesn't have going for it is it does have those blowout combos. Like, there are just going to be those games where, like you were saying, Alex, someone sticks Invidious, and that's kind of the game. Uh, and that could be like, really... Nope. <laughs> yeah, that can be really frustrating. I actually played an adaptive match like that today, and I just had to treat the Invidious like a life ward. I just discarded my hands uh, to Invidious for... 12 turns i think until i found a spirit's way and i came back because ganger ganger not is broken but <laughs> only because ganger not is broken did i end up winning that game um, broken. balance combo is a great combo oh my gosh no it's silly it's so silly it puts all the power in that house into two cards it's so wild <laughs> um but i think that comrade durand has so much going for it except it has the potential to be blown out which makes it tough for adaptive I, I kind of have come around to that a little bit. I want to, I want to challenge you. I want to play you in an adaptive match. This is going to happen here in the next, I don't know, maybe like the next hour. <laughs> I can't really talk. My, my favorite, my favorite adaptive deck also has a huge, like has a huge, like overpowered combo. So I don't know. It's like, I don't know what, I, I don't really know if there's any concrete answers. Cause it's like, those things feel bad, but then sometimes like, you know, my, my favorite adaptive deck has, double tribute basically as it's only amber control but it has double transporter platform and kirby and blaster so it can just go 
if they if you like stick both transporter platforms and then you go off with Kirby, it, there's like basically nothing that can be done because uh, you'll just infinite. You can not quite infinite loop the whole deck, but you can get pretty close um, depending on what what's going on. It's that deck. That was one of my adaptive matches. Me and Alex played an adaptive match. That was my third loss. Oh yeah. Okay. Because I did. I I think I I punctuated equilibrium something important away. I think we need to uh, talk a little about whether or not having a broken combo is bad for adaptive. Because I, I would like... Yeah, I, th- I think it's one of those things where it's like, it feels really bad when you get blown out to a combo that you have in your own deck. And you're like, well, why did I do that? But, you know, if I mean, that's going to... If it's a small percentage of the games, uh, but it's giving you a better advantage against, you know, in, in other games, then it's probably worth it to trade off. I think you kind of get into this sort of uh, like a cognitive problem that humans have, where it's like blowout losses feel really bad. Where it's like you don't, where we don't. It might feel better to play a game or, or like play a deck where you have slight advantage over a larger per- portion of the field. But I think data from the Magic the Gathering scene shows a lot of times like the best decks to play in tournaments are decks that have very good odds against certain parts of the meta and, and very bad odds against other and just hope to dodge those bad matchups if your goal is really to go far in a tournament. Uh, but as humans, we don't like to do that. So I, I just want to be careful just so it feels bad. I don't know if it's like really means it's wrong to play a deck like that. I have a question that I think will undergird this conversation in an interesting way um, and as a jumping off point, and that's, are there decks that can't high roll? Is is the idea that we are looking for an adaptive deck that can't high roll a white whale? Does that or or like are we chasing something that doesn't really exist? Right, any deck can hypothetically pull a starting hand of seven seven of one house of six of one house, and that's going to give you such a strong start. Um, and maybe we're talking frequency, but I think that is feasible. And maybe you could pick a worse deck, right? You could pick a deck with really average cards, uh, a deck with lots of actions so they can't stick a board full of creatures and then reap out to win. And But then are you hurting yourself in adaptive overall, to your point, Jake? Are you then saying, okay, I'm probably going to lose game one, which I think we'd all probably agree in adaptive, you want to win game one. Like, that's a goal of adaptive. You're, you're going in to win game one. So you're yeah, you're hurting I yourself. I want a two O people. Yes, absolutely. ideally I never bid chains. <laughs> yeah, totally. And playing a powerful deck is a huge part of that, right? So if you can play a powerful deck and blow them out the first game, and then take advantage of your exploitable weaknesses in your own deck game too, hopefully with some they've given you some tools. I don't know. Yeah, I mean I'll I'll beat my I I love my adaptive deck. It's you know it's my Jenka deck, Rider Rum Runner. And I mean, it definitely has an abusive combo. I mean, you've got Martian Generosity, Key Abduction. But the whole trick of the entire deck is the Mars and Sanctum is garbage. The Dis is where the power is in that entire deck. Um, and so that's where I get people. Like, they try so hard to set up the Janka, or they actually play the Sanctum House. And those are like trap houses. Um, so no, I mean, I understand what you're saying. Like, my my issue with the high roll nature, like calling yours high roll, is like the Book of LEQ... Like, man, they get that early, and, like, I don't know. I, I didn't know how to combat it if you don't have the uh, artifact control because it's really hard with the double exhume. Like, there's just so many ways to just, yeah, just to keep setting up those multiple house turns, and it just it steamrolls at that point once that gets going. 
and that just felt really bad and it just felt like i mean that was the card like if my opponent stuck that early and they didn't have the artifact control i was like well this is gonna this is gonna hurt <laughs> so it's just i guess it's yeah like that one and i don't know um when i played against blake from help from future self like he figured it out right away i mean he stuck book early and he saw you know he played against me the game before and i don't think i really even got it on online i'm pretty sure i lost game one and then game two yeah he got book right away and just figured out oh yeah there's ollie and lay of the land and just proceeded to just burst me down so fast just so efficiently I think to that point really quickly uh, is I think with an adaptive deck, you want a deck that doesn't have an obvious mulligan plan in the beginning, doesn't have an obvious opening hand strategy. And this deck has two. You aim for Book of LEQ and you aim for Invidious. And if you hand this this card list to like anyone who plays Keyforge who knows the cards, they know what to do in their first hand. Go for those cards, right? Yeah. And maybe that's one of the big issues. Like a deck like Drab has this really broken combo of Beehawks. <laughs> With uh, phase shift, hysteria, oh, library so access, yeah, and but and that can just blow out games. But it might not be as obvious that that's what you're shooting for, or it might not be obvious how to set that up. I don't know. Oh, it's uh, definitely not obvious in his deck. I I only know it because I've played against it like fifteen, twenty times and played with it at least ten or twelve times. That's the I only think, way I even know that those exist. Uh, I think that jumping back to the first question like yeah i i think that's a really interesting way of phrasing around like can all decks high roll and i think clearly the answer to that is yes uh however i think what we need to figure out is like what like and this is to a broader discussion about adaptive what makes a good adaptive deck the thing to figure out is like what is hard to do in keyforge and i would posit for the majority of top players like it's not figuring out combos and figuring out good lines of play. I think the hardest thing, and maybe this is just because this is what I find hardest, is a lot of times it's making decision between like, do I use my board and like which, and what house do I call? And I think that a lot of, like the reason I personally, and again, like I don't feel like I have close to enough information about this deck to really like make a definitive statement. But I think I would not choose this to, for me to personally spend a lot of time investing into for adaptive because I felt like in my limited experience, like a lot of times it's fairly obvious to which house to call. And you're generally not in situations where it, you're deciding between uh, reaping out on the board or playing things in your hand where it's not just like super obvious because you have a really big board. Uh, so I think it, it, it maybe is tricky and especially like for a lower level or a newer player, they would have a really hard time piloting this. But if I'm giving this to uh, somebody like Adjusted Blinded, who's in the chat here making good points, uh, I'm pretty confident in his ability to figure out the combos at least as well <laughs> as I can. Um, and, and I don't think I'm going to get very far. And even with something like Drab, you know, like I don't think the best strategy is trying to come up with like an obscure combo and hoping your opponent won't see it. I think it's yeah. trying to really get into the nuance of what makes this game hard and finding something that plays in that space a little more. With Adaptive, um, what I've really been experimenting with is um, less trying to find decks that high roll. Because, um, I, I mean, A, there's always... There, there will always be there will always be some high roll. I think um, Brendan is absolutely right about that. Like, you can't avoid high roll entirely. However, what I can do is create um, 
decision points that even experienced players might not be familiar with and that where whereby I gain an advantage from my experience of the deck. So I for me recently that has been playing a deck with double binding irons as an adaptive deck <laughs> because people yeah, are used to at this point a lot of people have bid chains but not everybody has bid chains with binding irons in play. No voice bar um, it's re- it it makes it really uh, so different yeah. and the math is up. completely different the way you have to think about uh the way you have to think about the decks um is completely different um so I, that's kind of where, and so again, I'm introducing a decision point, which um, maybe people aren't familiar with, or it's like, it also has Worlds Collide Brobnar in it, which is a thing that people haven't played a lot. So it's like, I'm introducing some elements um, that I can gain experience with by playing the deck a lot, but it will be hard for even experienced players to immediately pick it up and know this is exactly what I should do in these situations. Um, whereas like, like you guys have said with Comrade Durand, it, it genuine, genuinely, probably most of the time, anybody who has played Keyforge is going to kind of understand yeah. at least sort of what they should be looking for. They're going to miss the intricacies. Um, there's definitely some play lines that they'll miss, but I think that they will hit a lot of the major points, and that'll probably be, and that might be enough to get them through it a lot of the time. Um, even if they do misplay some of it in my, like the misplays will probably be minor. Um, whereas like, you know, binding the 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 bidding with binding irons can really jack it up, and so it. And I I've had a couple. I've played a couple adaptive decks with my uh, my favorite, which is Eberhard Zinsum. I have to. I'll I'll, I'll find it, but um, it's it's uh it's a really really interesting deck. Has some really cool pieces, and I've been that one's gone a lot better since I've been uh, I've been toying around with that one. Uh, maybe before we do a final sign off, let's let. Our guest here, Brendan Burnside Hansen, kind of do a final, final take on the deck. Oh, no, I don't want to interrupt anyone, but I feel like the the practice of like dialing down really deeply on one deck has been really, really valuable for me. And I'm just really thankful that Alex picked this deck and that y'all do this, um, because I feel like I've learned so much about Keyforge just from the practice of talking about one deck. Um, and I in the future, I like plan to play along with you guys. Would you play play decks on the show? Um, because I think there's so much to learn from playing decks that other people play. A lot of Keyforge, you know, we all every deck is a lens, right? We all have our own perspectives on the game because our experience is filtered through the decks that we play. And in most games, that those lenses are shared, right? The pieces that we have in the game are shared pieces, and we're mostly playing the same game. Um, and in Keyforge, that doesn't happen as much. So I just think that. I've my my understanding of the game has vaulted for it so much just through sharing a lens with you guys. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Burnside. It means a lot, man. And hopefully, other people oh, are doing yeah, that. Thanks, awesome. Burnside. So thank you so much once again, Jake and Alex and Dan, for having me on. I said it before, but the every every deck in Keyforge is an interesting lens, and we all see the game differently through those lenses. And I just it's awesome sharing that lens with y'all. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, and I hope uh, we can do it again soon. Maybe we can do another episode more focused on kind of the game design thing or even uh, similarities between uh, Keyforge community and fighting game communities and what those scenes are like, which we were talking about beforehand. I think both would be definitely ripe with some really interesting discussion. So thanks for joining us, Burnside. My name is Jake. 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Twitch at Jake Free. That's J-A-K-E-F-R-Y-D. Over to you, Dan. Hey, it's Dan. You can find me. I am Dan is someone on Twitter and Twitch. D-A-N-I-S-S-O-M-E-1. Uh, on Crucible and Kip, the password is always S, so hop on in. Hands are always revealed. Come spectate some games when you find me on there. And yeah, over to you, Alex, which I don't know if it's actually going to work, but to Alex. <laughs> Um, well, uh, we're just a picture of efficiency here. Um, all right. Uh, my name is Alex Slotnick. Uh, I am the Nick of Slots, hashtag 6418 on uh, Discord. You can drop me an email at the Nick of Slots at gmail.com. Uh, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for tuning in. All right. And, uh, so Alex has concluded. Burnside, do you want to, uh, plug anything or let people know where they can find you on Twitter? Sure, yeah, totally. I think that's the best place to plug. Thanks, Jake. Uh, at Burnside, B-H, that's like B-U-R-N-S-I-D-E, B-H on Twitter. Uh, you can find me there. Ask me, talk to me about Keyforge games, anything else. Comrades, the rant. The books are many in the vast crucible. Find that navigator. Check the lay of the land. House cheat every house. And oh yeah, Lord Invidious is waiting for you while you forge those keys.